This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 128th edition of the program. Today is January 25th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of these new individuals that signed up just this last week to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. This week we have Anne's, Austin Heller, Eva Christine, Jason Cabral, Jenny Galway, Kyle Huebner, Marsha Smith, and Melanie Strauss. So all of these individuals decided to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, we've got a lot to talk about. First of all, we'll discuss the so-called resistance and how they fundamentally misunderstand what it even means to resist in the first place. Ted Cruz finds himself in disagreement with himself yet again. I'll talk about another march that occurred last week. Mike Pence visited Israel and basically poured salt in the wounds of Palestinians. Additionally, we're staying in Syria indefinitely. CNN's assessment of Donald Trump's first year completely omits policy. Also, Paul Ryan is no longer even hiding his corruption and loyalty to the Koch brothers, and a new poll by Quinnipiac completely destroys the Bernie bro myth once and for all. And on this week's net neutrality news, the FCC backs down from their push to reclassify cell phone data as broadband, and the state of Montana is openly defying the FCC's recent repeal of net neutrality. Also, YouTube is now demonetizing small creators. So all of those topics will be discussed on today's edition of the Humanist Report. Uh, let's go ahead and just jump in because, yeah, we that's a lot of stories. We've got a lot to cover, so <laughs> let's waste no time. I am not afraid of Donald Trump. I am not afraid of the Republicans. And we're going to hold their feet to the fire. I am actually excited about this opportunity. That was Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer back in 2017 before President Donald Trump assumed office. And as you all saw, he assured us that the Democratic Party was going to be a force to be reckoned with in Congress. In fact, he was excited to have the opportunity to hold Donald Trump and the Republican Party accountable. But here we are now, one year later, and after a massive standoff with the Republican Party during a government shutdown, when they had leverage with the American people on their side, they still caved within days. And this isn't the first time that they caved, as you all know, but I mean, they were truly in an advantageous position where they could have not only fully funded the government for a year if they fought a little bit harder, but they also could have gotten all of the policy concessions that they wanted. They could have showed strength for the first time in decades, but they didn't. They chose to cower in fear to Republicans instead, like they usually do. Now, it would be one thing if Democrats were just too scared to stand up to Republicans, but they're not just cowards. They're also enabling Donald Trump and the Republican Party in dangerous ways. Just last week, 55 House Democrats, including Minority Speaker Nancy Pelosi, voted to expand Donald Trump's ability to spy on American citizens without a warrant. And in the Senate, 
18 Democrats voted to prohibit debate on that same bill. They didn't even want to discuss it. They just wanted an up or down vote. And this includes Claire McCaskill, Joe Manchin, Amy Klobuchar, and Sheldon Whitehouse. And in addition to these Democrats, Tammy Duckworth, someone who's usually progressive, also went along with Democrats who enabled Donald Trump. And ironically enough, after proposing to curtail the government's ability to spy on Americans, Dianne Feinstein also went along with this as well. And I wish I could tell you that that was the only area in which Democrats enabled Donald Trump and went along with Republicans, but it's not. As the New York Times reports, Democrats are adding momentum to the Republican Party's push to deregulate the same banks that crashed the economy in 2008. They report, quote, a group of Senate Democrats has joined Republicans to support legislation that would mark the first major revision of the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act, a signature accomplishment of President Barack Obama that has been deemed a disaster by President Trump. The bill would allow hundreds of smaller banks to avoid certain elements of federal oversight, including stress tests, which measure a bank's ability to withstand a severe economic downturn. Under current law, banks with assets of $50 billion or more are considered systemically important financial institutions and therefore governed by stricter rules. The bill would raise that threshold to institutions with assets of $250 billion or more, leaving fewer than 10 big banks in the United States subject to stricter oversight. That's what Democrats are doing. That's how they're resisting Donald Trump. And I know that by now... By the time you guys see this video, you're already sick and tired of hearing about the government shutdown, but I do think it's important that we talk about what happened because it serves as a really important example, if not the best example, as to how Democrats fundamentally misunderstand what it means to resist. And by now, you all know that before the government even shut down, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin took to Twitter to actually boast about their willingness to cave to Republicans and give them everything that they were asking for. And even though negotiations ultimately fell through and the government did shut down for three days, well, Chuck Schumer made it clear that it was their intent to cave all along. The president demanded for months that a deal on DACA include the wall. Most of we Democrats don't think the wall is effective. We think it's expensive. But because the president campaigned on the wall, even though he said it'd be paid for Mexi by Mexico, and demands the wall for the sake of compromise, for the sake of coming together, I offered it. The, the president picked a number for a wall. I accepted it. It wasn't my number. It wasn't the number in the bills here. He picked it. Now, it would be hard to imagine such a more reasonable compromise. All along, the president's saying, well, I'll do DACA and Dreamers in return for the wall. He's got it. So make no mistake about it. They were willing to cave from the minute they had any inkling that the government might possibly shut down. So in the end, they agreed to go along with Republicans to temporarily fund the government for three weeks in order for the government to be reopened. So what did they win? Um, did they get anything besides just embarrassing themselves? Well, I'll let disgraced former DNC chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz explain specifically what they got. So, so the one thing I would say that he did get is the potential for momentum. What the hell did you just say? The potential for momentum. I, then I'm maybe still, we I'm can sorry. be in a position to I, get so the House up. and the President Congress to come moment. on board. 
I'm still hung up, though, and I know Americans are listening, and they heard you say, and it's reverberating, potential for momentum, and they're thinking, yeah, potential they're, for momentum, was that really worth shutting the government down for? The well, potential for something. I'll, I will tell you that Republicans should be asking that, themselves that question because they shut the government down. So the Democratic Party got the potential for momentum, according to Debbie Wasserman Schultz. That's what they won by giving to Republicans, the potential for momentum. <laughs> God forbid they actually have real momentum, but they got the potential for momentum, everyone. <laughs> 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 However, Vox journalist and Democratic Party apologist Ezra Klein tells us that the Democratic Party didn't actually cave at all. In fact, this was a victory for them because they secured funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program for the next six years, and now Republicans can no longer use that as a bargaining chip and argue that Democrats are holding children's health insurance hostage because they support undocumented immigrants' rights. So that's a really, I guess you could say, glass half full optimistic way of looking at things, but anyone can see that this was not a win for Democrats because they face the possibility of another government shutdown in three weeks, and their basically ability to protect dreamers at this point is all based on a promise from an infamous liar, Mitch McConnell. So if Mitch McConnell decides to go back on that promise, dreamers get no protection. And the fact that funding for CHIP is considered a win in the first place alone demonstrates just how weak Democrats are because they let a bipartisan law become a partisan political issue in the first place. Had they hammered Republicans for refusing to fund CHIP, they wouldn't even be having this discussion in the first place. But again, they refused to fight as usual. And now, dreamers are forced to rely on the word of one of the most notoriously corrupt senators in the country, Mitch McConnell. If he decides to go back on his promise, what do dreamers get? Nothing. So, Democrats caved. I don't know how you could possibly do mental gymnastics and frame it in any other way, but the saddest part is that Democrats didn't have to cave. They didn't have to take that minor concession that was funding for CHIP because... They had Republicans backed into a quarter. In fact, just last year, I played this clip last week on the show, Donald Trump admitted that he would be willing to shut down the government in order to get funding for his border wall. Now, the obstructionist Democrats would like us not to do it, but believe me, if we have to close down our government, we're building that wall. <laughs> we have to close down our government, we're building that wall. Gotcha, bitch. You got him. That's it. You, you win this argument. The American people will know who chose to shut down the government. And if that wasn't enough, Donald Trump blabbed on Fox News repeatedly that whenever there's a government shutdown, he knows who to blame. It's always the president. If there is a shutdown, I think it would be a tremendously negative mark on the president of the United States. Who's getting fired? Who's going to bear the brunt of the responsibility if indeed there is a sh is shutdown of our government? Well, if you say who gets fired, it always has to be the top. I mean, problems start from the top and they have to get solved from the top. And the president's the leader and he's got to get everybody in a room and he's got to lead. You know, the interesting thing is in uh, 25 years and 50 years and 100 years from now, when the government is, you know, they talk about the government shutdown, they're going to be talking about the president of the United States. Who was the president at that time? Mm -hmm. They're not going to be talking who the head of the House was, the head of the Senate, uh, who's running things in Washington. So I really think the pressure is on the president. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha.
gotcha, bitch. So that right there was a gigantic gift that Donald Trump handed to Democrats and basically assured them that in the event of a government shutdown that lasts for weeks potentially, they're not going to get any blame for it. In fact, polls indicate that Americans actually did blame Donald Trump and the Republicans for the shutdown. And even in the event Donald Trump hadn't blabbed about a shutdown, it would have been evident that Republicans were to blame, seeing that this is the first time in American history that the government has ever shut down when one party was in control of all branches of government. But in spite of all of that, in spite of the multitude of reasons they had to hold strong, they chose to cave and they did not hold strong for Dreamers. I mean, they could have held out a little bit longer to secure protections for Dreamers so that way they don't have to wait three more weeks to wonder if they're going to be able to stay in the country that they grew up in. Democrats chose to cave, even though they had Republicans backed into a corner because you can't take any chances. I mean, especially during an election year, if you're Democrats, right? President Donald Trump said that Democrats care more about illegal immigrants than our military. So, of course, since Donald Trump said mean things about them and the Republican Party said mean things about them, they had to back down. You can't take any chances, right? Except they had them cornered on that framing of the issue as well, because Democrats actually got, I mean, I, I'm surprised they were able to do this. They got Republicans to show their cards. So here is Claire McCaskill asking for funding for the military to make sure that the government shutdown doesn't affect them. And then watch what Mitch McConnell says. I was most disappointed tonight when the president of the United States put out a statement that tried to divide us based on party when it came to support of our military. There is no such division. I ask unanimous consent that the Senate proceed to the immediate consideration of calendar number 36, H.R. 1301, that the amendment at the desk for continuing appropriations for pay and death penalty benefits for members of the armed services be considered and agreed to, the bill as amended be considered read a third time and passed, and the motions to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table with no intervening action or debate. Is there objection? Mr. President, reserving the right to object, we passed similar legislation uh, during the government shutdown back in 2013. My hope is that we can restore funding for the entire government before this becomes necessary. I'm going to object for tonight, but we'll discuss again tomorrow. Therefore, I object. Objection is heard. Gotcha, bitch. So there you have it. Mitch McConnell said publicly that he objects to a measure that would make sure the military still gets paid during the shutdown. You got him. It's over. You're holding them accountable right there. And I actually did have a glimmer of hope for a second that Democrats would hold strong based on their rhetoric, because this is how Tammy Duckworth responded to Donald Trump's claim that Democrats don't care about the military. I spent my entire adult life looking out for the well-being, the training, the equipping of the troops for whom I was responsible. Sadly, this is something the current occupant of the Oval Office does not seem to care to do. And I will not be lectured about what our military needs by a five deferment draft dodger. And I have a message for Cadet Bonespurs. If you cared about our military, you'd stop baiting Kim Jong-un into a war that could put 85,000 American troops and millions of innocent civilians in danger. So make no mistake about it, that right there 
is how you show force and stand strong. So kudos to Tammy Duckworth for actually standing up to the president. If only she displayed that same level of courage and stood up to him before voting to expand his ability to spy on Americans, then, you know, I might actually take her seriously. But at the end of the day, Democrats did what we all expected them to do. They rolled over and died. They caved. But thankfully, not all Democrats were spineless. Some Democrats actually did stand up to Donald Trump and the Republicans, and they were willing to fight a little bit longer for dreamers. That includes, expectedly, the progressive wing of the party, like Bernie Sanders, Jeff Merkley, and Elizabeth Warren. They weren't willing to cave right away, but even big talkers like Clara McCaskill and Tammy Duckworth decided to cave at the first chance they got. And what's the end result? The potential for momentum. Besides getting the potential for momentum, they ended up pissing off progressives, they aggravated media outlets that actually tend to give Democrats more favorable coverage, like Slate, and Donald Trump is now basically rubbing it in their faces that they caved. And what makes this even more absurd is that when Republicans shut down the government in 2013 because they were demanding that Obama not provide funding for the Affordable Care Act, I mean, they knew they were going to lose. That was inevitable, but yet they still held strong for 16 days. But here in this situation... Democrats actually had a chance to get real policy concessions to protect dreamers, to fund the government for a year, and they caved after three days, not even three full days, mind you, two and a half days, basically. So in an interview on CNN with Anderson Cooper, Bernie Sanders lays it out really clearly as to why holding strong was a no-brainer. I think what is going on to me is very clear. Uh, that the Republicans really want to shut down the government for whatever reason. Where we are, Anderson, is not complicated. Uh, as you know, in the United States Senate, you need 60 votes to pass uh, this budget resolution. Mitch McConnell doesn't have 60 votes. He doesn't have it. He knows he doesn't have it. The, the option that he has now is to say, okay, I don't have the 60 votes. Let us sit down and negotiate. Let us work in a nonpartisan way to address the crises facing this country. Last night, you may have heard this, we received a tweet from the Pentagon. And what the Pentagon told us is they need a fully funded fiscal year 2018 budget or face ramifications for our military. This is the Pentagon. They cannot function on a month-to-month -month basis. We are a $4 trillion government. We need to have an annual budget because what's going on now is very, very dangerous and wasteful for our country. Many, many crises that have not even been addressed. We cannot keep kicking the can down the road. Well, the, you know, the Republicans, obviously, and the White House are saying, well, look, it's the Democrats who seem to want to shut down that by forcing the issue on immigration, on DACA, no. which is something that could, no, could be done. No, that's not true. That is not true. Here again is the situation. And let the let the viewers make their decision. Mitch McConnell does not have 60 votes. And if he goes forward tonight at 10 o'clock, as I understand he will, he will lose. Therefore, the government will shut down. Understanding that, what a rational person who does not want to shut down the government does is say, OK, I don't have the 60 votes. I can't do it alone with the Republicans. We have to sit down and negotiate. What do you want? Let's go forward. That is what has to happen. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, I mean, they may think politically, uh, that a shutdown works to their benefit. You'll remember uh, way back when uh, the president 
Uh, Donald Trump was talking about how maybe the country needs a good government shutdown. I don't know. But I think it will be a very unfortunate thing. McConnell has got to start negotiating. And it's not just about DACA. We have, we are three and a half months into the fiscal year. Three and a half months. We still don't have an annual budget. You know what that means? It means 27 million people in community health centers have not received refunding, the uh, new funding authorization. It means that 30,000 vacancies at the Veterans Administration are still not filled. It means we have a heroin and opioid epidemic sweeping this country. We are not addressing it. We have a collapsing infrastructure. We are not addressing it. So we have real work to do, and we can't simply have a dysfunctional government which doesn't address our problems and passes a continuing resolution month by month by month. Yet here we are facing another possibility of a shutdown in three weeks and potentially a shutdown after that if Congress agrees to another stopgap funding measure to temporarily fund the government. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this is tiring. The Republican Party, they're bullies. And the reason why they bully Democrats is because it's a tactic that works. They get what they want. And the only way you deal with a bully is by standing up to that bully. But what do Democrats do? They run and hide. They retreat. They never have the courage to hold strong. So we'll see in three weeks whether or not Democrats actually do hold strong. Chuck Schumer is now talking big again. He's saying that he's withdrawing the wall as an option. So will they hold strong in three weeks? Probably not, but I hope they actually prove me wrong. I'd love to come out and say I stand corrected. Democrats held strong for once, but... Yeah, I'm not too optimistic about that. But at least I got the potential for momentum, right? So Ted Cruz was speaking to reporters about the recent government shutdown, and he said something so profoundly untrue that a reporter couldn't help herself, and she called him out on his bullshit right then and there. And that led to a really interesting exchange that ultimately made Ted Cruz look like a fool. Oppose everything, resist everything, shut everything down. Sir, this sounds pretty familiar. Didn't you say all this back when this happened to you? Now, I recognize that that, that is a media narrative that you love to tell, but it's worth noting in 2013. Green eggs and ham? In 2013, I voted repeatedly to fund the government, and in 2013, it was Harry Reid and the Democrats who voted no, who voted to shut the government down, just like this week. Republicans voted to fund the government, and it was Chuck Schumer and the Democrats who voted to shut shut the government down. Bottom line, are shutdowns a good use of leverage or not? Uh, look, we should not be shutting the government down. I have consistently opposed shutdowns. In 2013, I said we shouldn't shut the government down. Indeed, I went to the Senate floor repeatedly asking unanimous consent to reopen the government. Sir, you and stood the in the way of that. Uh, that, that. Okay, that's factually incorrect. It's I, not, it, though. It's a wonderful media narrative. But only one thing actually causes a shutdown. When you have senators who vote to deny cloture on a funding bill. And when that bill comes up, you have a vote. A yes means fund the government. A no means don't fund the government. In 2013, virtually every single Republican voted to fund the government, including me, multiple times. Virtually every, in fact, every single Democrat, I believe, in 2013 voted to shut the government down. The same thing is true here. Virtually every single Republican 
voted this week to fund the government. Virtually every single Democrat voted to shut it down. Sir, that's simply not the case. This was this which was about this was about Obamacare funding. Which you, which of those facts are incorrect. You insisted at that time. I, I get you, that you want to debate me, but you don't actually have any facts. Why were your Why were all of your GOP colleagues angry with you? So kudos to that reporter because with how condescending he was being for how wrong he was. I don't know that I would have been able to hold my composure in the way that she did. I probably would have gotten pissed and just yelled at him. But what he says here, I want to go over the quote. He says, I have consistently opposed shutdowns. In 2013, I said we shouldn't shut the government down. Indeed, I went to the Senate floor repeatedly asking unanimous consent to reopen the government. Yeah, so what he's saying here is complete and utter bullshit. I don't know how else to describe it. By asking to reopen the government, I take it Ted Cruz means that he told Democrats that if they didn't provide funding for the Affordable Care Act, which was required by law, then he would stop being an obstructionist tool. So basically, when he says he asked them to reopen the government, he probably means that he essentially told Democrats they could reopen the government if they gave in to all of his demands. And those same demands, ironically, facilitated the government shutdown in the first place. So basically, if Ted Cruz were to slap himself across the face, he would blame Democrats for slapping him if they didn't intervene to stop him from hitting himself. That's his logic. That's how he's basically doing mental gymnastics to reframe this to make it seem as though the onus was on Democrats to reopen the government. No, Ted, we know exactly what happened in 2013. It wasn't that long ago. But in spite of what he wants us to believe, Ted Cruz actually was on the record saying that a government shutdown might actually be unnecessary political strategy. He said this in a discussion with Sean Hannity on Fox News. You said something the other day I was really glad you said. I think the Republicans were weak when it came to the fiscal cliff. I think they have a lot more leverage now over the debt ceiling. Yep. So my question to you, it, it, you said they should be willing to shut the government down. Not all functions right. of the government. Right. What would you shut down and do you think your fellow Republicans will do that? Well, I hope we stand strong. I mean, the reason we got a lousy deal with the fiscal cliff is that President Obama had the leverage. Because when you got divided government, whoever owns the default, whoever wins if nothing is done, is in the strongest position. And Obama was in a strong position there because if nothing was done, taxes were raised on every American taxpayer. With respect to the debt ceiling, we have the default. If fiscal conservatives stand together, we can force some substantive reforms, some pro-growth reforms, and if not, the effect is not a default. And Obama's going to say that over and over and over again. We've got to be very clear. It's not a default. We should always, always, always pay our debts. But what the effect would be is a partial government shutdown. And we've seen that before. We saw it in 1995 with Republicans in Congress. It and worked. It worked. We there, got to a balanced budget for the first time. Year after year yeah. after year. Gotcha, bitch! So either Ted Cruz completely forgot about saying that, or he's intentionally choosing to not remember that uh, conversation he had, conveniently so, because it makes him look bad. Now, when Ted Cruz went on to actually shut down the government, and uh, he filibustered, what he did was he likened the Affordable Care Act to green eggs and ham. He said that basically Obamacare was being shoved down our throats and the American people didn't want it. So he then proceeded to actually read green eggs and ham on the Senate floor. And I love this story and so I'm going to read it to you. Sam I am. That Sam I am, that Sam I am. 
I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouse? I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Would you eat them in a box? Would you eat them with a fox? Not in a box, not with a fox. Not in a house, not with a mouse. I would not eat them here or there. I would not eat them anywhere. I would not eat green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Gay! Gay! Now, we all know that the reason why Ted Cruz probably doesn't like green eggs and ham is because he prefers tonsil stones instead. Got him. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, needless to say, I shouldn't even have to come out and say this, but in saying that he's been consistently opposed to government shutdowns, you don't have to dig very deep at all to determine that he is a complete liar. And this is, I think, one of the more brazen lies, because again, this just happened in 2013. We're not talking about something he said decades ago. He said this just a couple of years ago when he very explicitly is the reason for the last government shutdown. So, I mean, Ted Cruz is proving with everything he says that he's living in an alternate universe, an alternate reality, wherein things happen that only he sees, but nobody else sees. Even Republicans criticized him back then for choosing to shut down the government because, by and large, they got blamed for it. It made them look like shit. So, Ted Cruz, since he doesn't like what happened and he probably regrets shutting down the government, he wants to reframe history and make it seem as though he wasn't really responsible when, again, I mean, we could just check what he said on Fox News. We could see him filibustering and shutting down the government. So, I mean, Ted Cruz, you're only hurting yourself and making yourself look foolish. So back in 2016, something happened that always happens during elections. There were a number of lifelong Democrats and registered Democrats that decided to flip and vote for a Republican. This happened back in 2000, it happened in 2008, and it doesn't just happen, you know, with Democrats flipping and voting Republican. The opposite is also true. Republicans vote Democrat once in a while. But what was unique is that Donald Trump was so antithetical to everything that a Democrat should believe that for those that flipped and ultimately swung the election, I think, I want to know why they did what they did. I don't know that we'll ever get conclusive answers because everyone is different, but CNN had an interesting segment where they talked with Democrats who flipped and voted for Donald Trump, and they asked them to assess his performance a year later. And what they said was really interesting to me. 2016, according to the Mahoning County Board of Elections, approximately 7,000 registered Democrats switched parties to become... Republicans. He said he's going to make America first and he's going to bring jobs back. Donald Trump said you're in lousy trade deals. We fix that. The jobs can come back. Something that he said that really sticks with me is that he wants to give the power back to the American people. And that's something that I can 
certainly get behind. I'm with a pastor, a stay-at-home mom, a student, a machine shop worker, and a union member. Democrats or raised in Democrat families who crossed over to vote Trump. We're one year, one year in. How's he doing? Fantastic. Phenomenal. Great. Better than I ever would have dreamt. I mean, I mean that sincerely. Really? Oh, yeah. Derek? Yeah. Yes, I yes, agree. Absolutely. Yes, he's doing wonderful. He's staying on task. We start with a hot-button topic of the moment. How big an issue to all of you is immigration? Huge. Huge. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. In Youngstown, Ohio? Absolutely. And as far as I'm concerned, they're stealing jobs of rightful citizens. It's also about something else Trump voters say is important, rules and respect. I feel like when people come here illegally, that's just very disrespectful. You don't respect our laws, and you shouldn't be able to come here freewheeling like that. A year later, they all still want the wall. As for the president's inflammatory tweets and speech, Gino says he used to cringe, not anymore. So you don't cringe anymore because you've grown numb to it? or No, not, not numb at all, but I know what he's done. And I, I'm, I'm starting to get an inkling why he uses Twitter in the way he does. Because if all he had to rely on is what people say about him, oh my God, I might not like the guy. <laughs> but I love the guy. I love the job he's doing. Justice met Trump at a rally and says he's not a racist. He was just the nicest person. And honestly, he, if he was a racist, as everyone um, paints him out to be, he could have just walked right past me and not even said a word. What about the lies? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think he is a liar? Do I think he's lied? No. Do I think he's fallen short in some of his goals? We all do. Economically, they say things are getting better. The stock market and their home values are up. Industries are booming um, everywhere I'm, I've, I've seen. I look around here, I don't see a boom. Well, uh, in this area, no, but I, I feel like uh, there's small businesses that are starting to pick up. Derek says Trump's tax reform will fuel the recovery. If you expand your business in the inner city, so then my community will benefit from this tax cut. Do you think the media gives the president a fair shake? I don't think so at all. No. One year later, these voters couldn't be happier. They see achievement. Most of all, they see a president like them. And he's like tenacious sometimes and says stuff off the cuff like we do, like real Americans do. You know, we're not perfect. I'm tired of suave. I'm tired of polished. I'm tired of the teleprompter. You know, I am. I, I want my country back. So that to me was incredibly surprising. I want to go back to what they said. He's doing better than I ever would have dreamt. Uh, immigrants are stealing jobs from rightful citizens. That's what one person said. When people come here illegally, that's very disrespectful. Do I think he lied? No. Uh, he's tenacious sometimes and says things off the cuff like we do, like real Americans do. He's not perfect. I'm tired of perfect. I'm tired of suave. I'm tired of the teleprompter. So, when I hear these things, I can't help but obviously recognize right off the bat that these people are misinformed about a lot. Although I do understand with what some of them are saying. Yes, you know, he's not focus group driven. I get that. I prefer that as well. But I don't necessarily care so long as the policy is on point at the end of the day. But it's interesting because it shows that they still approve of Donald Trump. And this was surprising to me because for people who are liberal-minded voters after one year with Donald Trump being a disaster with his approval rating being at what 32 percent they still support him and I find that fascinating so initially what I was gonna do was come out here and debunk what they're saying you know because with that guy saying well immigrants are stealing jobs from rightful citizens obviously 
he's misinformed. That's not happening. But rather than basically debunking what they're saying point by point, I think that honestly, the media just isn't educating the public about the most harmful policies that Donald Trump has implemented. They're only holding Trump accountable in the sense that they wag their finger at him if he says something offensive, but they're not holding his feet to the fire where it really matters. I mean, when he actually bombed a Syrian airfield, which was illegal and against our constitution, he got praise by the so-called liberal network, MSNBC, Fareed Zakaria, said that he became president when he bombed Syria. They're not talking about how behind the scenes he is deregulating Wall Street, which is something that could facilitate another crash. Instead, we see things that he says, things that he does. And to me, that's, that's harmful. If you're going to critique Donald Trump when it comes to what he says, you also should absolutely make sure that you are holding him accountable on policy as well. And CNN recently released an assessment of Donald Trump's first year in office that I think highlights exactly what the problem is. They focused on his flubs and um, not his policies at all. Betcha can't look away. No one eclipses President Trump when it comes to flubs, starting with his inauguration when the wind revealed his tie held together with scotch tape to his recurring and, and mysterious sniffing human soul. To the time he invented a new country. Namibia. It's Namibia. But what's a missing syllable? And did he think we'd miss seeing him push aside the Prime Minister of Montenegro at a NATO photo op? Is he a president or a bridesmaid positioning to catch the bouquet? And of course, he caught flack. How great is that? For his golf cart driving, protested one golf fan. I don't care if he's God. You don't drive golf carts within 20 yards of a green. You've got to hand it to President Trump. When it comes to flubs, he's got his hands full. When he used both hands to clutch a glass of water, he earned the title President Sippy Cup. And after his unforgettable imitation of then-rival Marco Rubio, desperate for a drink, President Trump drowned in comparisons for doing pretty much what Rubio had done. The president got swatted by his wife when he tried to take her hand. She had to nudge him to remind him to put his hand on his heart. And when's the last time you shook hands with your sweetie? Not only did the Trumps resort to a marital handshake, he shut her down like a robot from Westworld. His 19-second handshake earned him an eye roll from the Japanese prime minister. Just watch his expression at the end. Over and over, he risked liberating arms from sockets with his now infamous grab-and-yank technique. And when it came to the most predictable line in any president's speech, he blew the blessing. And God bless the United States. Thank you very much. But at much. least you can't slur a tweet unless maybe you start to fall asleep. Kofifi. Huh? Kafef? Kafifi? Kofifi. I know words. I have the best words. Some he knows even before the dictionary does. Genimos. CNN. New York. So admittedly, that was a humorous video. I mean, I, I also like to poke fun at Trump. He's an easy target. He's a jackass. Um, I mean, who who doesn't laugh at someone who's so cocky who then has to basically <laughs> c 
close his mouth to talk because he's afraid that his dentures are going to fall out. I mean, that that's just comedic gold. But their assessment of Donald Trump completely omitted policy. Now, to be fair, I don't know if they had some other policy analysis, but I take it they probably didn't. And in assessing his first year in office, they focused on the flubs, not the policy. And I can't help but think that this is why normal Americans think that Donald Trump is doing a good job because the media is doing a terrible job at educating the people on his most harmful policies. See, when I did my assessment of Donald Trump's presidency, it was almost exclusively based on policy with a couple of exceptions. So, for example, I noted his endorsement of Roy Moore and how he's in violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution because he refused to place his businesses in a blind trust so that way he would no longer have control. So, when you go through and talk about his policies, it becomes crystal clear that he's been a complete disaster for normal Americans, the same Americans that were featured in that clip. But when you simply make fun of him because he mispronounced Namibia or because his dentures were about to fall out during a speech, even though that's funny, I mean, CNN is one of the most widely watched cable news networks in America. Leave the memes to us. I mean, jackass YouTubers like myself, we should be the ones making fun of Donald Trump and memeing Donald Trump, which we do. But we should always rely on the biggest source, I mean, CNN, for policy. But anytime I tune into CNN, at least, it's completely bereft of policy. They're focusing on a new thing that Donald Trump said that offended them, that has left them outraged. And again, yes, I get it. But if you leave out policy substance from the conversation, regardless if you are providing Donald Trump with wall-to-wall negative coverage, that's not going to resonate with the American people because him simply saying something that's offensive doesn't have a real-world impact on people in that clip that CNN interviewed. But you have to talk about the policies and how what Donald Trump did will fundamentally harm them. Get into the details about the tax bill. Talk about how repealing Obamacare, even if they don't like the individual mandate, will have a huge impact aggregate effect on healthcare in general that will ultimately facilitate an increase in their monthly health insurance premiums. Why isn't CNN talking about these things? It's because, you know, when you when you have a 24-hour news show or news network, you just got to hammer out the news right away. You got to get it out there. You don't really care about anything but drawing eyeballs to the screen. When you, Donald Trump, tweet the post of a train hitting CNN, you might think it's funny. It's not. It's stupid. It's actually childish. My 10-year-old nephew wouldn't even do something like that. When you tweet a doctored video of you body slamming CNN, people are watching. What grade are you in? And not to just pick on CNN, this is MSNBC too. Why hasn't MSNBC, the so-called liberal news network, just hammered Donald Trump for some of the things he's done? Well, it's because Donald Trump is guilty for a lot of the same things that the Democratic Party and President Obama are also guilty of doing. So they can't berate Republicans for voting to expand Donald Trump's spy powers because Democrats did that as well. They can't call out the Republican Party's corruption when it comes to net neutrality, because Democrats also take a lot of money from internet service providers. I mean, I'm not saying that Democrats and Republicans are exactly the same, but a lot of the areas where they should be calling out Republicans, I mean, Democrats are guilty for as well. So when I watched that segment, at first I was puzzled as to how they could possibly come to the conclusion that Donald Trump's first year was a success, especially if they were Democrats before. But when you, when you look at the media, 
it all becomes crystal clear. It's because the media just isn't sufficiently holding Donald Trump accountable. And again, if you ask, I mean, they were asked, do you think that the media is giving Donald Trump a fair shake? They said no. And it's because they're just poking fun at him for stupid shit. You have to hit him where it counts. Policy. And you don't even have to take a position. You don't have to editorialize like I do and say, well, it's bad that he signed an executive order that expedites the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. You just have to say that he did that and then viewers can get the facts and make their own conclusion because I think the facts about Donald Trump's presidency, I mean, they speak for themselves. But again, they don't do that. CNN and MSNBC don't do that and Fox News certainly will not do that. And when Obama was in office, what did Fox News do? They never criticized Donald Trump for the substantive things. They didn't call him out for the drone war that he waged in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. They brought on birthers, and they um, bashed him because he wore a tan suit one time, or he didn't salute a soldier. But again, they can't call out Obama and Democrats because Republicans are guilty of the same thing, so they all look like hypocrites. So here we are in this terrible media climate where the most we get in terms of holding the government accountable is making fun of their flubs. Well, you need more than that if you actually want an educated populace. And the reason why Trump won and why the path was paved for him and for potentially another Trump in the future is because the media is inept. They are fundamentally underperforming. They're not doing what they should be doing. They're not educating the American people on the issues that affect them directly. So it's been a while now, but if anyone recalls why our government told us that we're in Syria, well, primarily they'll state ISIS as the primary reason. We're there so that way we can defeat ISIS. But now that ISIS is on its last leg, well, we're not pulling out of Syria. In fact, there's no end in sight. And there's a very good reason for that, because our government just let us know that whether we like it or not, we're staying in Syria indefinitely. So according to David Brunstrom of Reuters, he reports that the United States on Wednesday signaled an open-ended military presence in Syria as part of a broader strategy to prevent the Islamic State's resurgence, paved the way diplomatically for the eventual departure of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and curtail Iran's influence. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, in a speech at Stanford University, called for patience on Assad's departure, the clearest indication yet of an acknowledgement that Russia and Iran have bolstered Assad and that he is unlikely to leave power immediately. Built as the Trump administration's new strategy on Syria, the announcement will prolong the risks and redefine the mission for the U.S. military, which has for years sought to define its operations in Syria along more narrow lines of battling Islamic State and has about 2,000 U.S. ground forces in the country. While much of the U.S. strategy would focus on diplomatic efforts, Tillerson said, but let us be clear, the United States will maintain a military presence in Syria focused on ensuring ISIS cannot reemerge while acknowledging many American skepticism of military involvement in conflicts abroad, Tillerson said. A U.S. disengagement from Syria would provide Iran with an opportunity to reinforce its position in Syria, Tillerson said. As candidate, U.S. President Donald Trump was critical of his predecessor's military interventions in the Middle East and Afghanistan. As president, however, Trump has had to commit to an open-ended presence in Afghanistan and now Syria. So think about... The contradiction there in his announcement. Rex Tillerson said, we're going to be staying in Syria indefinitely, 
But we acknowledge that the United States citizens are skeptical about our continued involvement in the Middle East. Okay, so <laughs> why are you staying there then if you know we're skeptical? Do you see how our government operates? It doesn't operate to represent us. They operate to make sure they appease the military-industrial complex. Now, let's go back to the reasons why they said we have to stay in Syria. Well, first of all, we have to make sure that ISIS doesn't ever rear its ugly head again. That's one reason. Another reason is because Iran, I mean, we have to make sure they don't get any more influence than they already get in that region. Well, to the latter part of their justification for staying there, who gives a shit? If Iran has more influence, how does that directly threaten the United States national security again? It doesn't. Now, second of all, in making sure, you know, after defeating ISIS that they don't pop up again, you know another way that we can make sure we defeat ISIS and make sure they never ever emerge anywhere ever is we just occupy every single country in the world and make sure they never pop up again. I mean, that's the logic. If you extend that logic to its conclusion, that's what you get. You get occupation everywhere, indefinitely. What we're doing, the war on terror, is actually creating more terrorists. Studies have shown this. But yet here we are, dropping bombs on countries, killing innocent civilians, and breeding hatred for the United States. And it's not just that the United States is announcing that they're going to be staying in Syria. Donald Trump expanded the drone war exponentially. He ramped it up by almost 500% in comparison with Barack Obama. Now, what's interesting is that when Barack Obama took office, he immediately ramped up George Bush's drone war. And once he realized that basically they're killing a lot of civilians, mostly civilians, and they're not really even killing much militants, he scaled it back down. Not fully, but he still scaled it down. But even when he scaled it down, I mean, George Bush still didn't have as big as a presence when it comes to drones as Barack Obama did. Although he's not innocent, he started the Iraq War, which catalyzed the civil war and killed 200,000 civilians, maybe a million. I mean, it's, it's difficult to quantify death like that, but it was devastating. And now Donald Trump gets in, not even trying to learn Obama's lessons, and he ramps up the drone war. And then after running as an um, anti-imperialist, as a non-interventionist, this is how he repays his base. Part of the reason why Donald Trump was elected, I mean, there were probably many reasons, but is that a lot of people, anti-establishment-minded individuals in general, decided to suck it up on Donald Trump's economic policies because they were assured by him that he was non-interventionist. He berated Jeb Bush for what his brother did during Republican debates and the Iraq War. He talked about how our government should pull out of all of these countries. But yet, here he is, being even more militaristic than Obama. And at this point, I mean, he's been in office for, for one year. George Bush didn't even do this much with regard to the military in his first year. Now, of course, circumstances changed. 9-11 occurred and whatnot. But, I mean, at this point, Donald Trump seems like he's on pace to do even more militarism than George W. Bush, and we knew George Bush and Dick Cheney were neocons when they were elected. Trump said he wasn't a neocon. In fact, Republicans, people in his own party, were accusing him of being an isolationist. And this is what you get. 
continuity, regardless of who you vote for. So this is something that is not being talked about. The media is not covering it. Cable news shows aren't covering it because we know exactly how they feel about this. They probably agree with it because when Donald Trump decided to illegally and unconstitutionally bomb a Syrian airfield, they were cheering him on. Fareed Zakaria, a so-called liberal and intellectual who I previously respected, said that when Trump bombed Syria, he actually became president that day. So it took him killing people to become the president officially in your eyes. We had MSNBC hosts talking about how beautiful the missiles were. I mean, just doing shameless propaganda on behalf of the military industrial complex. It's disgusting. So this is the way your government represents you. They don't. They don't care what you think. They don't, they don't care that you're skeptical. They know you're skeptical. They told us that they know you're skeptical. They're doing it anyway. They're staying in Syria indefinitely. Nothing uh, we say or do will change that. So even though Donald Trump pledged to remain neutral when it comes to Israel-Palestine on the campaign trail, one of the last and perhaps most egregious things he did in 2017 was declare Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now, Protests erupted immediately afterwards in Palestine, with thousands of people taking to the streets to protest Donald Trump's decision, and this inevitably led to clashes between protesters and Israeli forces, and even some casualties as a result of Donald Trump's decision, and the United Nations also condemned President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, overwhelmingly, with 128 countries voting against the United States in disapproval, including our neighbors, Canada and Mexico. So, since this all happened just last month, things are still really, really tense. I don't even have to tell you that. It's, it's a very potentially explosive situation. Now, Mike Pence visited Israel, and what did he do? Well, he didn't tone down the rhetoric. He basically fanned the flames even more, and after fucking over Palestinians, he decided to spit in their faces. So when he addressed the Knesset, there were some Arab-Israeli MPs, or MKs since they're members of the Knesset, that protested him, and uh, they weren't too happy about him being there. Members of the Knesset, justices of the Supreme Court, citizens of Israel. Now, I am glad that they stood up for themselves, but when you watch that, it's kind of difficult to see what was happening, but when you look at what happened from a different angle, you'll see how quickly Netanyahu's goons shut down their protest. So the minute they held up a sign, as you can see, 
snatched away like that. But basically shutting down protests, not necessarily the, that that was Mike Pence's decision, I'm sure it was Netanyahu's, but shutting down protests, that's not the worst aspect about his visit. Because what he did that was especially vile, and what really fanned the flames was he made this announcement. It's deeply humbling for me to stand before this vibrant democracy. Jerusalem is Israel's capital. And as such, President Trump has directed the State Department to immediately begin preparations to move the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, obviously, that makes the prospect of peace that much more unlikely. Because if there are any peace talks, if there's any negotiations, the U.S. would almost certainly want to be involved but now that we've taken this stance, since we've unequivocally abandoned even the slightest semblance of neutrality, why would Palestinians want to come to the table and negotiate if we have anything to do with negotiations? And yet, if Palestinians push for a boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel, then they get penalized for that as well. In fact, a Democrat in the United States, Ben Cardin, just last year tried to criminalize support for BDS among United States citizens. And after resorting to undemocratic tactics to shut down opposition, you have Mike Pence ironically emphasizing that he's so proud to be in a, quote, democracy. Vibrant democracy. You applaud them for being a democracy right as you watched peaceful protesters get escorted out of the Knesset for doing something that's a hallmark of democracies. Protesting. Palestinians are that much worse off. He declared a disputed capital as Israel's and now they're moving the embassy to Jerusalem. This is going to do nothing more than cause chaos, and it made, made us look bad around the world. Again, 128 countries voted in disapproval of what we did. So, the way that we look around the world is like, we're the bad guys, and yet we're claiming to support democracy and support Israel because they're a democracy, but here we are resorting to authoritarian tactics to shut down protests against what we're doing. It's just a joke. It's a complete joke. At this point, I don't think anyone would be surprised about just how corrupt both parties are in Congress, because we have a campaign finance system where multinational corporations and billionaires are able to donate unlimited funds to politicians, effectively buying them off. And of course, if those politicians want to get reelected and they need money to get reelected, then are they going to listen to Walmart? who donates a million dollars to their super PAC, or are they going to listen to you and I, who donate five dollars to them? I mean, I think that the answer is evident, right? They are going to listen to their big, high-dollar donors. And that's why we have a system where, when you look at studies from Princeton University by Dr. Gillins and Page, you see that when you look at whose policies are actually being codified into law, it's no contest. Normal Americans have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, whereas elites and special interests have all the say when it comes to policy outcomes. So at this point, I don't think I'm going to surprise anyone by saying that Congress, by and large, is corrupt, with the exception of a few senators and uh, representatives. But one thing that does continue to surprise me is just how brazen some politicians are becoming in their corruption. They're not even trying to hide things that look like 
very apparent quid pro quos, for example. And perhaps the latest and probably one of the most brazen examples of corruption ever comes from House Speaker Paul Ryan. So according to Mary Pappenfuss of HuffPost, she reports just days after the House passed its version of the federal tax law slashing corporate tax rates, House Speaker Paul Ryan collected nearly $500,000 in campaign contributions from billionaire energy mogul Charles Koch and his wife, according to a recent campaign donor report. Koch and his brother David spent millions of dollars to get the tax law passed and are spending millions more in a public relations campaign in an attempt to boost support for the law, the Wall Street Journal reported. Koch Industries, one of the largest private corporations in the nation, operates refineries and manufactures a variety of products. The new tax law, which slices corporate tax rates from 35% to 21%, slashes estate taxes and includes a special deduction for oil and gas investors, is expected to save the Koch brothers and their businesses billions of dollars in taxes. Just 13 days after the tax law passed, Charles Koch and his wife, Elizabeth, donated nearly $500,000 to Ryan's joint fundraising committee, according to a campaign finance report filed Thursday. Five other donors, including billionaire businessmen Jeffrey Hildebrand and William Parfait, each contributed $100,000 in the last quarter of 2017, according to the records. The Coke donations were paid into Team Ryan, which raises money for the Speaker, the National Republican Congressional Committee, and a PAC run by Ryan. On the same day, Charles and Elizabeth Koch also each donated $237,000 to the NRCC. So, the picture here is crystal clear. They wanted Paul Ryan and the Republicans to pass tax reform, and he did it, and then they rewarded him just days after he did it. Now, as if this story wasn't enough, well, when Republicans were still in the process of pushing for an Obamacare repeal and tax reform, the Koch brothers were so adamant that they wanted this policy passed that they were threatening Republicans and said they would shut off their access to the piggy bank if they don't get it done. So that's why we saw not only a large tax reform bill, but an amendment that also repeals the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act, which effectively dismantles Obamacare. This is legal. This is happening in a so-called democracy. And there's absolutely no way to really, quote, prove that, you know, there was a quid pro quo when it's obvious that Paul Ryan did what the Koch brothers wanted. But there's absolutely going to be no repercussions for this. Paul Ryan won't be investigated by any ethics committees. This is something that occurs on a daily basis. Donors request favors after donating to uh, Republicans and Democrats, and then they get rewards, and then they double down on the contributions. So really, there's no other conclusion that I can take away from this other than we have to get money out of politics. We have no choice. The influx of money in politics is killing our democracy, if you even want to call us a democracy. And what's left of our, quote, democracy, even though really we live in an oligarchy, I mean, what's left of it will be gone if we don't fight this, if we don't get money out of politics and publicly finance elections. I don't know how media outlets aren't outraged by this and covering this every single day well, actually, I do know, but, you know, if the media were doing their job, then they would be talking about what's clearly a quid pro quo. They would be questioning Paul Ryan and holding his feet to the fire. But the problem is that a lot of these donors that contribute to politicians also advertise 
with mainstream media news outlets like CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. So why would they rock the boat? Because if they question financial ties that they also have, then they may inadvertently expose themselves as well. So we have this self-perpetuating cycle of corruption, and it's only getting worse. Politicians are getting more shameless in just how corrupt they are. And even though most people will hear this and probably not be surprised, we can never lose our sense of outrage because this is egregious. By now, you already know about the second annual Women's March that occurred over the last weekend, but there was another march that also took place that a lot less people know about. This is the so-called March for Life. Now, what is the March for Life? Is this a bunch of anti-war protesters rallying around the country to demand that the United States end its ongoing imperialism? No. Uh, does this include demonstrations of people calling for disadvantaged minorities and people of color to stop being assaulted and brutalized by American police forces? No, not exactly. So, if this is a, quote, march for life, then what exactly are they marching for? Well, this is what the March for Life is about. It will be one year ago, this Saturday night, uh, that we swore in the most pro-life president in American history, and in one short year, President Donald Trump has made a difference for life. Today, President Trump will become the first sitting U.S. president to address the annual March for Life. The evening news covered the Women's March three times more than the March for Life. Can you blame the news, though? Fetuses just aren't as interesting. They can't wear bright pink hats or carry signs with shocking slogans that pass for edgy. And they certainly aren't as cool as celebrities. So we heard him loud and clear. Sadly, no one can hear a fetus. They're the truly voiceless. But we've heard the, this media coverage story before, that the media covers X way more than Y. It's an old story. We do it. But we do it because it's true. The bigger question is, why is it true? Even if a network producer wanted to cover the pro-life march more, it's simply too risky. By pitching that idea in a meeting, you give yourself a way that you might not be a liberal. It's like an NRA sticker. It tips people off that you're more red than blue. So rather than expose yourself to your peers' disgust, you bite your lip. Well, I'm not afraid to discuss the March for Life, and I'll tell you why nobody else is really talking about it or taking it seriously, Greg. Because it's stupid. There. I said it. It's not, it's not that difficult to reach that conclusion. It's stupid. The movement is a walking contradiction. First of all, contrary to popular belief, abortion isn't tantamount to baby killing. Furthermore, the abortion rate in general continues to decline in the United States year after year. But for the few abortions that do occur, over 90% of them happen fewer than 13 weeks into pregnancies, which is the pre-gestation period. And just over 1% of abortions are performed after 21 weeks. Now note that states do not offer abortions to women if they are within the 22 to 24 week period of their pregnancy. Additionally, nearly a fifth of abortions are medically necessary and on the moral side of things, if you think abortions are immoral because fetuses may have the ability to feel pain, well, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists found that a fetus can't actually feel pain 
before 24 weeks. And the University of California found that they actually aren't able to feel pain until 28 weeks. And these are all statistics that are provided by the Guttmacher Institute. And if they're not convincing to you, that's perfectly fine. Because if you still are against abortions, if you're morally opposed to abortions, that's fine. But there is one tried and true method that absolutely reduces the number of abortions. Contraception. Greater access to contraception not only reduces teen pregnancy, but it also is much more effective at reducing abortion than prohibitive laws. And as the intercept Saeed Jalani explains, participants of the March for Life know exactly how to reduce abortions. They can push their government to fund contraception. He argues in 2008, the Colorado Department of Public Health partnered with a private donor to launch the Colorado Family Planning Initiative. With more than $27 million in private funding, the CFPI set out to provide education and access, ranging from low-cost to free, to long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs such as IUDs and implants, using Colorado's network of Title X family planning clinics. By mid-2015, the program had provided LARCs to around 36,000 women. A state report released last year showed that CFPI has been a dramatic success in reducing both teen pregnancy and the frequency of abortions sought by teens. But in spite of that, people who are marching in the so-called March for Life protest they're not advocating for greater access to contraception. In fact, they're against abortion and contraception. So they want to have it both ways. On one hand, they want to ban abortions, but on the other hand, they also want to ban contraception, which just so happens to be the one thing that actually reduces the number of abortions. Now, I know that instinctively, you might be inclined to say, well, there's one thing that can reduce abortions for sure. You just ban it. But that's actually not true. In fact, abortions, the abortion rate, generally speaking, in the United States overall was higher before it was legalized. So legalizing abortion actually does decrease the number of abortions. I know that sounds odd, but that's the numbers. That's the statistics that are widely available. So members of the March for Life... They want to have their cake and eat it too. But that's not even the worst part about this walking contradiction of a so-called movement because this is supposedly a march for life. So when I hear somebody talk about their desire to protect life, I mean, the implications are that they care about all pain and suffering around the world. But the problem is that I didn't see these proponents of life take to the streets when President Donald Trump's first military raid led to multiple women and children dying, including Nawar Alalaki. I don't see these people marching for the Rohingya in Myanmar, who are currently the victims of an ongoing genocide. They're not marching for the women and children and babies in Yemen who are being bombed with the weapons we sold to Saudi Arabia. These people didn't march for life when Bush's Iraq war killed more than 200,000 people and catalyzed a civil war in Iraq. They didn't march against the drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, that terrorize and kill innocent civilians. They're not marching for the thousands of Americans that die every single year because they don't have health care. So if they claim to care about life, why aren't they marching for those things? Because we don't necessarily know that fetuses feel pain, but actual developed human beings, including babies, toddlers, children, women, men, who can definitely feel pain, they don't seem to give a shit about those individuals. But when it comes to fetuses, because they have a political agenda, proponents of life don't seem to care about fully developed human beings. The so-called March for Life 
is nothing more than a joke. It's a walking contradiction full of hypocrites and hacks that only care about life insofar as that said life is a fetus. Once that fetus is actually born and becomes a baby, however, they're more than willing to enthusiastically vote for a political party that makes sure that life is deprived of healthcare, a social safety net, and a chance at economic mobility. They don't give a fuck about life as soon as it's born, only when it's unborn. So to explain to Greg Gutfeld why the March for Life isn't taken seriously, it's because they fundamentally misrepresent the title that they've given to themselves. This is a group of people that are selectively outraged about an issue that they only think they care about because of their profound ignorance. So, longtime viewers of The Humanist Report know that I have spent now years, literally, trying to debunk the so-called Bernie bro myth, but now there's a new poll that was recently released by Quinnipiac and basically proves that the Bernie bro myth was complete and utter bullshit. I no longer have to debunk it because this poll does it for me. So Larry Gross of Truthdig reports, according to the latest Quinnipiac poll, here are Bernie Sanders' favorable slash unfavorables. Among women, favorable 50%, unfavorable 34%. Among men, favorable 46%, unfavorable 46%. So Bernie Sanders has a net favorability that is higher with women than among men. Now, when you break that down demographically, among blacks, Bernie Sanders has a 70% favorable rating compared to his 10% unfavorable rating. Among Latinos, favorable 55%, unfavorable 21%. Among whites, favorable 43%, unfavorable 45%. So Sanders has higher favorables and lower unfavorables among blacks and Latinos as then among whites, and higher favorables and lower unfavorables among women than among men. And this poll isn't even an outlier because an older poll from Harvard Harris yielded the same results. So in that poll, Bernie Sanders had the highest approval rating among African Americans with 73%. He had the second highest among Latinos with 68% third highest among Asian Americans at 62%, and the lowest approval rating among whites with 52%, although he still has a majority. And of course, this poll also shows that his approval rating is higher with women than it is with men. So how does that myth go again? That Bernie Sanders only gets support from um, straight white males? Nope. That's not it at all. So when people like Joanne Reed say, well, you know, the Democratic Party, they can't become the party of Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders only has support among white people and Democrats are supposed to be the party of people of color, of the LGBT community. Well, what do you have to say now, Joy? Bernie Sanders has a higher approval rating among disadvantaged communities. I wonder why that's the case. It's because he's representing them well. He's adequately demonstrating that he knows their struggle. He's one of the few authentic politicians in the country that's genuinely expressing a desire to not just understand what Americans want when it comes to policy, but he's trying to understand what he can do politically to help them out. So the Bernie bro myth is officially dead. I'm calling it right here. Anytime establishment Democrats try to trot out that same talking point, oh, well, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, Democrats, they just can't possibly move towards a more progressive Bernie Sanders style of politics because, you know, we have to represent everyone. You know, our base doesn't just consist of straight white males. It consists of women, women of color. Now what? <laughs> there's, there's nothing. We just can show them this poll and the, uh, the other one, the Harvard-Harris poll, and we're done. 
the Bernie bro myth is officially dead. I'm declaring it right now. Because I don't, I don't know how you can still do mental gymnastics here and purport that Bernie Sanders is just a politician or a candidate of straight white males. It's over. And I don't, I don't even have to remind you guys. I went through so many articles talking about how Bernie Sanders was only supported by straight white males and these disgusting straight white males. I mean, they only care about themselves. They don't care about women of color. And Bernie Sanders only appeals to them because he represents their interests well. Again, that's not true. So I can't not gloat because this is just, this is amazing. This poll, (laughs) I mean, what more evidence do we need that the Bernie bro myth is bullshit? We have two polls now that yield the same exact results. So anytime Joy Reid says anything or Joan Walsh says anything to imply that Bernie only represents straight white males, you can either show them the poll or share this video. Um, There you have it. A couple of weeks ago on the show, I talked about how states were defying the FCC. So as you all know, when they voted to repeal Title II net neutrality protections on December 14th of 2017, the FCC actually preempted states and banned them from implementing their own net neutrality rules. However, shortly after, there were states that stepped up to defy the FCC, such as California, Washington, and New York. But we now have another development regarding that story. So Montana actually becomes the first state to protect net neutrality via an executive order issued by the state's governor. So John Brodkin of Ars Technica reports, Montana will require internet service providers to follow net neutrality principles in order to receive state government contracts. Governor Steve Bullock, a Democrat, today signed an executive order imposing that requirement beginning July 1st, 2018. There has been a lot of talk around the country about how to respond to the recent decision by the Federal Communications Commission to repeal net neutrality rules which keep the internet free and open, Bullock said. It's time to actually do something about it. This is a simple step states can take to preserve and protect net neutrality. We can't wait for folks in Washington, D.C. to come to their senses and reinstate these rules. Montana's attempt to enforce net neutrality rules could be challenged in court, but Bullock is attempting to sidestep the FCC's preemption by making net neutrality a condition of state contracts rather than a law applying broadly to any internet service. The order directs that to receive a contract from the state of Montana for providing telecommunication services, the service provider must not block lawful content, throttle, impair, or degrade lawful internet traffic on the basis of internet content, engage in paid prioritization, or unreasonably interfere or disadvantage the user's ability to select, access, and use broadband internet service, Bullock's announcement said. The executive order attempts to extend the net neutrality protections to residents and private businesses in Montana. To qualify for state contracts, internet service providers must not violate net neutrality principles with respect to any consumer in the state of Montana, including but not limited to the state itself, the order says. So I absolutely applaud the governor of Montana. This is a really bold move because he's right. We can't wait for politicians in Washington, D.C. to get their act together because, as you know, we have 50 votes currently to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality under the authority granted to Congress by the Congressional Review Act. But have you guys seen the vote take place yet? I haven't. 
Now, maybe it's the case that they are still trying to lobby for votes in Congress. Maybe they're, they're trying to get one more Republican because they have to. So maybe they're still trying to do that before they push for a vote. But if we wait for the federal government to do anything, then we're going to be waiting a really long time. And this is going to be a long court battle. So I think a short term fix has to be introduced by each and every single state. And honestly, the fact that only a couple of states at this point have introduced fixes is a little bit surprising to me. You see liberal states like Oregon, Vermont, states across the country patting us on the heads, telling us they support net neutrality while simultaneously sitting idly by as this order is going to go into effect in a couple of months. So I think that this is the right move. And really, there's two things that you have to do as a consumer, as someone who wants net neutrality. First of all, you've got to call your governor, your state representative, your state senator, and let him or her know that You want net neutrality. You want your state to protect net neutrality. Now, yes, it is the case that the FCC did block states from introducing their own net neutrality laws, but a workaround that we're seeing states use is that they just indirectly enforce net neutrality by saying, we won't give you a government contract if you violate net neutrality, but it's not necessarily legally mandated. That's clever. So that's one message that you could relay to your state representative. Um, It's a strategy that I think could potentially work. We don't know if it's going to hold up in courts, but we don't know if the whole net neutrality order will hold up in courts. Now, another thing you have to do is continue calling Republican senators and let them know to sign on to the resolution to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, we've got to start showing up to town halls across the country and show that we are a force And we have to demand public broadband because if it's public, if your tax dollars fund it, if you own it, then guess what? You don't ever have to worry about internet service providers throttling or creating fast lanes or blocking content because that's your internet. You pay for it. You own it. So I think that this is a really good move. And for those of you still demoralized about the repeal of net neutrality, understand that things are happening like this that are really good signs. I mean, states, for the most part, they're not lying down and taking it. And Democrats are signaling, surprisingly so, that they will make this a campaign issue this year during the midterm election. And that's good, not only because it could help them win, I mean, pro-net neutrality Democrats win, but it also might elevate the salience of net neutrality. It might make it an issue that media outlets actually talk about, hopefully, since one party is talking about it, but we'll see. But for the most part, there are things that we all have to do individually. I think the responsibility lies on us now. We we have to show up to city councils. We have to make the calls. We have to put in the work because all we can do is wait um, to figure out what's going to happen with regard to these court cases and um, the Congressional Review Act vote. But meanwhile, We've got to we've got to we've got to get to work. Um, if we want net neutrality, we have to demand it. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about the FCC's attempt to reclassify cell phone data as broadband. Now they were going to be voting on this on I believe February third, but they recently announced that they're completely disarming. They're backing away from this. Wired's Clint Finley reports, internet activists just got some unexpected good news from an unexpected source. Last summer, the Federal Communications Commission floated the possibility of lowering its threshold for connections to be considered broadband. Now, it's backing away from that idea. 
The FCC announced Thursday that it will continue to define home broadband as connections that are 25 megabits per second. The commission also established a new standard for mobile broadband as a connection of 10 megabits per second or higher and said it had rejected the idea, which it had floated last year, of labeling mobile internet service as an adequate replacement for home broadband. Consumer groups and advocates for rural communities had worried that changing the definition of broadband would enable the government to minimize the so-called digital divide between communities with speedy internet access and those without. Had the FCC decided to count slower connections as broadband or accepted mobile connections as adequate, it would have effectively shifted many areas now considered underserved by broadband providers to be considered as adequately served. That could translate into less funding for broadband projects in communities stuck with low connections. Thursday, the commission said it would not redefine broadband. However, the FCC said enough progress is being made to conclude that advanced telecommunications technologies are reaching the public at a reasonable pace. The commission referred to the FCC's recent decision to jettison its Obama-era net neutrality rules as an example of the action it's taken in the past year to advance broadband deployment, citing its questionable claim that the rules led to a decline in broadband infrastructure investment. Democratic commissioners Jessica Rosenworcel and Minion Clyburn welcomed the decision not to change the definition of broadband, but rejected the conclusion that broadband is being reasonably and timely deployed. So this is really interesting to me, and I'm kind of puzzled as to why the FCC would back down from something that they previously wanted to push for. Because, I mean, the FCC demonstrated last year that they don't care at all. You have 23, what, 24 million comments now submitted to the FCC telling them to leave net neutrality alone, and they did it anyway. With hubris while they did it. I mean, they were condescending and cocky about it, and they basically laughed in our faces while they were doing it. So when it came to them reclassifying cell data as broadband, I thought, oh, this is a foregone conclusion. Of course they're going to do it. But all of a sudden, they backed down. So what gives here? To me, even though I was initially excited about this, because of course we want the standards for broadband in America to increase, not decrease, um, but certainly I was excited, but a little bit skeptical. What's going on here? So I think perhaps what it is, is that the FCC, they bit off a little bit more than they can chew. And after getting so much pushback from the American people, I think that the Republican commissioners on the FCC, Ajit Pai, Brendan Carr, Mike O'Reilly, they're basically saying, okay, we're going to have to pull the brakes because we are, we're rousing too much suspicion right now. People know that we are doing nothing but the bidding of the broadband industry and we know that, and they know that lowering standards makes it easier for them to offer a shittier internet for higher prices. And I think that maybe they just thought we can't keep doing this. Maybe we have to take a break. Certainly, it's not over. I mean, there's going to there's gonna be other things that come up that allow them to facilitate a decline of the internet in America. I mean, when Ajit Pai became the FCC commissioner or the FCC chair now, he basically stated he really wants to bridge the digital divide. But we found out that was bullshit because he's doing things that are contrary to what would in fact bridge the digital divide and repealing net neutrality. I mean, that just flies in the face of bridging the digital divide because net neutrality, repealing that facilitates less access to websites, which means less access to the internet. So I don't know really what's going on here and I don't necessarily have any 
plausible theories that can explain why they decided to back off other than them just realizing we're doing a little bit too much now. Maybe we need to pump the brakes, wait a year or two, and then come back to it. But certainly, if they are going to still do more, we still have to keep the pressure on them. But I think it's probably going to occur further down the line because they know states are rising up to challenge their net neutrality repeal. You see it um, going to the courts. So they're going to have to gear up and really defend that vote, which I don't think they're going to be able to do successfully. So maybe they don't want to take on too much of a workload right now. Maybe they don't want to piss off too many people, although too late. But uh, I don't know what this is, but I'm glad. Uh, I'm not going to give them credit for not doing something they wanted to do that was shitty, but certainly uh, I'll welcome their decision to not further fuck up the internet like like they were planning to do. So um, yeah, this is good news. YouTube recently made some announcements, and now they're going to be demonetizing the platform's smallest creators. So according to Julia Alexander of Polygon, YouTube's new rules state that creators must now accrue 4,000 hours of watch time over the course of 12 months and reach 1,000 subscribers to join YouTube's partner program and qualify for monetization. This is a big change from the company's previous rules put in place last year that allowed any channel with 10,000 views to apply for the partner program. The change will allow for fewer competition among creators applying for monetization as the rules are designed to restrict the number of those eligible for advertising on their channel. For those who post four or five videos a week, accruing that much channel view time and subscribers shouldn't be too difficult based on the company's findings. So they made this announcement and they received a lot of backlash. There were a lot of smaller creators that spoke up, and they released this statement in response. Our recent changes to the YouTube Partner Program are designed to curb bad actors, stabilize creator revenue, and provide greater assurances to advertisers around where their ads are placed. By making these updates to the YouTube Partner Program, we aim to help creators of all sizes find more success. We have many free resources in place such as our Creator Academy and YouTube Spaces to help those just starting out build a community around their channel so that they can ramp up fast and monetize their videos. Now, as you'll remember, the justification for demonetization and the adpocalypse in the first place was based off of a Wall Street Journal article that was showing Coca-Cola ads being displayed before um, extremist videos, racist content. Advertisers didn't like that and they pulled out And basically, the rug was pulled from creators. We were pretty much all demonetized. We lost a substantial portion of revenue, and many of us are still recovering from that. So now what what they're saying, the logic behind this decision is that if they demonetize smaller creators, that reduces their probability that everyone else will be affected because people who sympathize with terrorists or provide racist content, they'll be less likely to reach that small threshold to have an impact on the aggregate platform. So if they're demonetized and they have to reach that minimum threshold, then that will make it less likely that bad actors will harm the rest of us. So this is a compromise, and it's a compromise that is basically... It comes at the expense of smaller creators, right? So theoretically speaking, this is better for... The bigger YouTubers, people with 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 subscribers. But I don't know that I feel comfortable with that compromise. In fact, I don't like it. Because in demonetizing small creators, you're raising 
the barrier to entry. And it's already difficult to get started on YouTube, but this makes it that much more difficult. It makes people who have phenomenal content feel discouraged because they've been chipping away at YouTube now little by little and they still can't get paid, so they might just give up. And I've kind of seen this. Like, I've seen small progressive YouTubers produce content and then they gave up after a while because it's, it's very difficult. You really have to be consistent. But this makes it that much more unlikely that people will be successful, one, and just want to get involved with YouTube. And I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not concerned with aggregate YouTube, although I do support small creators in general, but I really care about the importance of independent media. We need people who do the job that the mainstream media is refusing to do. There's a demand for independent news, and this makes that demand much more difficult to be filled. So understand that this is absolutely a compromise. You know, people like myself should theoretically support this move because, yeah, I don't want small bad actors to ruin it for all of us, which is pretty much what happened last time. But at the same time, in eliminating smaller bad actors from the equation, you penalize people who don't deserve to be penalized, who produce phenomenal content. So this this is really disheartening. I know a lot of people who are starting out on YouTube are going to be discouraged, but this just really increases the necessity for crowdfunding. You really, if you are getting into YouTube right now, the one piece of advice that I can offer is that hit the ground running with Patreon. Because without that, I mean, you're just not going to be able to make a living. So if you see someone that's small and you really feel confident about their ability to produce progressive news, or even not just progressive news, someone who you like on YouTube, then really consider supporting them on Patreon, even if it's just a dollar, because this is that much more difficult now for people to get started. And I don't want to be someone that only speaks out on an issue that affects me because I don't want to just be one of those entitled assholes who closes the door on people behind me once I was able to, you know, get success off of this platform. I want other people to come forward and usher in a new era of progressive politics. I don't want it to just be so that way there's only a couple progressive platforms on YouTube. I want there to be a lot of diversity because, I mean, we're trying to... We're trying to fill a void that's left by the mainstream media, and they produce news 24 hours a day. There's multiple networks producing news 24 hours a day, so we need a lot of people to speak up to be the news outlet that cable news isn't, and this makes it that much more unlikely. So overall, this is really discouraging. You know, it's discouraging not just to small creators, but myself as well. I, I feel bad, you know, uh, and there's nothing that we can really do about the situation. So in the end, um, if you are a small creator, please, please, if you really, really true, truly feel passionate about what you're doing, stick to it. I produced so many videos when I got started that went nowhere that I was really proud of that I wanted to share, but that got like 100 views. And it sucks. You're doing a lot for nothing. But if you stick to it, eventually, you could really build a platform and a following, it's more difficult now. And, you know, it doesn't seem like that's going to change. But again, you have to get involved with this because you really truly feel strongly about it. And I think if you stick to it, you can still be successful. But in the end, you know, I, I'm disappointed that YouTube is making it more difficult for people to be successful on this platform. Well, that is all I've got for you guys on this episode. I don't have much else to say about politics. 
um, until next week. So also feel free to check out the latest edition of Establishment Exiles with Sahil Habibi. And also, um, you could find us on iTunes and SoundCloud as well. So uh, as usual, I want to send a huge shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. You guys help us to not just survive, but thrive as well. And uh, you guys are crucial to our existence. So thank you all so much. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed the show. I'll see you all next week. Take care.